quick disclaimer about this episode of the Gospel Friends for our normal or long-time listeners. There's going to be some uh, nuanced humor in this episode for you. Um, for new listeners, there are normally three of us. Um, this is not the comedy we intended to do when the night began, um, but alas, this is a different kind of show in which there are two of three Gospel Friends recorded um, while all were present. So, It's going to be a little bit fun um, to listen to, Um, a lot of sarcasm there, Uh, but there's some good content in the episode, some good discussion that we wanted to get out to the audience, um, even in spite of some of the technical snafus. So enjoy the two-thirds of this episode of The Gospel Friends, and we will be back normal, Lord willing, next week. In a world where heresy blankets the airwaves, religious stuffed shirts suck the life out of Sunday morning, and prosperity teachers rob grandmothers of their pensions— Three unassuming ministers endeavor to shine the light of biblical theology and put the fun back in fundamentalism. Broadcasting live from the Hall of Dogma. Brought to you this week by Good Judgment. Welcome into episode 69 of the Gospel Friends. I am the reinstated Reverend Verbage. I am Chase Captain Crunchy Thompson. Welcome back, David. And that's all I have to say. It is late. It is 1.41 in the morning. Uh, due to life circumstances, we are recording this week's episode in uh, different locations, hidden locations. We are utilizing Google Hangouts, and uh, I hate that all of you are missing this, but currently... Chase is wearing a Irish, I think they call those bowler hats. Aye. Nick Nick is a Viking, and I am the ultimate warrior. Hooray. All due to, uh, well, <laughs> yes. You can actually see a picture of this if you uh, are a member of our Facebook group, the Hall of Dogma, which you can get to hallofdogma.com. Uh, and uh, I posted a picture, a screenshot a little earlier just for fun. Guys, I appreciate you uh, having me back. I was um, suspended the last two episodes uh, in case anyone missed that. Um, just to give you the short version, uh, someone stole something. Someone stole something that belonged to me. I uh, confronted them about their their thievery, and I was then suspended from my own podcast. So I would like to salute you. America 2015, <laughs> because this is the environment we live in. Well, on the uh, executive board of the Gospel Friends, we don't take kindly to the abuse of uh, disabled people, uh, the elderly, or small puppies. Well, I want to I I reiterate again that she was not elderly. Uh, she was a grandmother, which, which you could technically be a grandmother at – at, young ages, just depending on life events. Um, but I, I do have, a, so I do have a funny story for you guys that I'd like to share. I actually, so I, I spent my, um, my two weeks suspension, uh, as all good celebrities do. I, I just went on vacation. So I, I took my family and we went to the uh, beautiful Gulf coast of Alabama and Gulf shores, orange beach. And, um, I have a couple of interesting stories from that trip. One of them uh, I'm not going to uh, share on the podcast, but it did involve me being detained and thrown off of a military base in Pensacola, Florida. 
You know, However, it's I... amazing to me that <laughs> military bases don't want you bringing weapons inside. I mean, what has this country come to? Listen, I I have I, I don't. It would look like the military would want to protect your uh, your amendment rights. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna that story. I'm gonna edit point. We lost him hardcore. He's gone. Well, that's what he gets for messing with the military. Yep, a vicious probing and a loss of the internet. That's very funny. So an interesting thing just happened on the podcast, in case you were able to detect an edit point. David was telling the story of how he tried to smuggle multiple arms into a military base, and they caught him and abused him and disabused him of the notion of carrying guns onto the base, and his internet connection froze and he dropped off. So uh, thank you, military, for protecting us. We salute you. We appreciate your uh, you, and uh, God bless America. Um, Back to your story. Okay. That, uh, look, I'm not sure that's exactly what happened. Did, did, did where, I was, where, where I was saying that that story would be in our upcoming book, did that make it? Negative. Oh, okay. Well, I was saying that I, I'm not going to share that full story, that it would actually be in the chapter after the dog story in our upcoming <laughs> book, The Gospel Friends Under the Covers, nice. uh, which I think nice. is supposed to be <laughs> released in 2018. <laughs> so uh, look for that on. Might need to do a little work with that uh, title. It's a working title. Yeah. But all right, here's my real story, and hopefully the AARP won't freeze my internet connection the way the government did. Oh, all you right, had so, another tangle with an old person. Wait no, no, th- this is just ironic, okay? Just keep in mind that I'm suspended from the podcast for a confrontation with a grandmother. So I go to the beach with my family. We rent a house. Uh, now, one of the things that we do when we get a beach house is uh, at the beach, you can rent these tents, that people will put out onto the beach for you. Um, you ever done that, Chase? You know what I'm talking about? The big tents they'll set up for you. I've heard of rich people doing that. I myself have never engaged <laughs> in such activity. Uh, do you take Living your own? on a modest pastor salary, I am lucky to know what a beach looks like. Do you take your own tent with you? That's sad. <laughs> okay, well, I, <laughs> I rent the tent, um, and, and people come and serve you champagne and fruit all day long on the beach. So I think it's very common. All right. So, <laughs> we have small kids, so you can you can rent these tents for the week so that you know they won't get sunburned and everything. So I, I paid for this tent and the guy set it up and he told me where it was at down at the beach. So the first day of the exile to Gulf Shores, I got the kids, we got our carts together and we start heading out to the beach and we walk down the long walkway. The walkway ends about 50 yards from the water. The tent is set up next to the water. And as we're heading down to the tent, I noticed that um, it appeared someone was under the tent. And I, I don't mean just like standing there momentarily. I mean their lounge chair was under the tent. They were laying out, reading a book. They had a cooler and a uh, beach bag next to them. Was it a 
particularly dangerous orphan, perhaps <laughs> a nun or uh, somebody feeding the hungry. Well, I didn't. I couldn't tell exactly, uh, and, and immediately my first thought was shoot to uh, kill. S- someone has. Yeah, I mean that. It, it's irritating to me when people do this because very clearly these tents are rental tents. They even say it to rent this tent or one like it. You call this number, and and you know whether or not you've rented a tent. I mean, <laughs> y- you know if you have called and paid for a tent, you know that, and if you haven't. You know that. So very clear. You can't stumble into one of these tents accidentally. Um, okay, so so as I got closer, I, I noticed that um, there was actually two people. Um, one of them was lounging right outside the tent, and then the other person that had set up, set up camp underneath it. And uh, as we got closer, I could tell that these uh, it were two ladies, and I could tell that they were – <laughs> well, I, I don't think they were Syrian refugees, but I could tell, oh, okay. I could tell that they were of age, um, of a lot of age. Uh, they've been around a while, and so I immediately I realized that uh, on my exile, being suspended from the gospel friends because I confronted a grandmother who had stolen my parking space. There was a grandmother who had stolen my tent. <laughs> And and was camped out underneath it. So I proceeded into the tent uh, and just pulled up in it with all of my kids. And she looked over at me and said, oh, did, did you rent this? And I said, yes, ma'am. And then she started getting her stuff together. But in my head, ringing in my head were all of, all of the voices of the gospel friends, <laughs> listeners who have called me names and, and told me how horrible I was. Well, I actually had a listener who said – that she thought I was the most horrible person alive. Um, now really? I, te- yeah, Are I texted you to uh, say what that listener's name is. You, you know what? I'm going to give her initials. Uh, it's JD. JD. No relation. To, no relation to JD Hall, although she probably okay. could be. But but nevertheless. Um, so so JD. About uh, mom? Uh, no, I'm just I'm just leaving it at JD. Oh, we're going to keep it anonymous. Okay. Yeah. So JD called me the most horrible person alive, which I did text her a picture of Charles Manson and just ask her if she knew he was still alive. Because, you know, I mean, I, I, I could come up with some people who I think are more horrible than me. Um, I may or may not have. Well, I, I won't I won't. I won't mention that. Anyway, so these voices are ringing in my head. So I, I told the lady I looked at the lady and I said, Hey, you know what? You, you can stay if you like. It's fine. And 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 I I let her uh, stay under my tent for uh, I don't know. I mean, she stayed for like thirty or forty five minutes with her friend, who, by the way, she was with all week, and um, no one else. So I, I believe I may have been nice to some grandmothers. Uh, where, where are you? Where persuasion. are you going here, buddy? Okay. Well, I, 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 just, I just think it, it may it may it, it may have been a. It, I'm just saying it may have been a gospel opportunity, and I just didn't take advantage of it because I was on vacation. I was in exile. But anyway, I.
Well, no, look, very clearly I got suspended for, you know, protecting what was protecting what was mine. Uh And, and so I just didn't want to get suspended longer. I mean, I, 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 I'm sure out there somewhere. I mean, as very clearly, I understand Nick, you know, even though I paid for the tent, she had more rights to it than I did because she's a female. That's how, that's how you see it. So, um, and you know, I, so I just let her stay. I, I did what you would have done, Nick. I, mean, I didn't rub her feet or I didn't rub her feet or anything, but I, I I did let her stay. So and I'm surprised you didn't pull a JL on them. Uh, JL. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You you can look it up later. It's a it's a Bible <laughs> reference to tents and pegs and stuff like that. It's, oh, it's no big that, deal. That JL. Are you well? <laughs> well, are you calling them plus size, Chase? No. No, I'm not. I'm just that. Didn't JL ram a tent peg into someone who was of um, larger size? You know, it's interesting. I think you're conflating the story of JL and Sisera with the story of uh, Eglon in Ehud. You're right, I am. Yes. That, is, that would yeah. be a great like Bible mix-up story to, to kind of make a comic book out of. If you, I if you to go kind of mash those two together, like a Marvel team up kind of thing, we should do that. We would make a lot of money on that story. Yeah. Well, nevertheless, I am. Uh, I, I let the grandmother stay, and um, I let the grandmother stay, so all of the uh, gospel friends would be happy with me. So I hope Did I you? can now remain on the show. That's that's an amazing story. Did you also share the tent with him? Like your family? Uh, no, see, it, it really, in, in the back of my mind, I knew that. No, 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 no. no. Here's the thing. I, <laughs> I am ramming things into my ear right now. It just no one can see it. No, no here's comment. here's the thing. I actually. Um, allowed my kids to stay up in the tent area, knowing that the grand the, the grandmother would probably not stay very long. Uh, she actually lasted longer than I thought she would. So about 30, 40 minutes, we shared our tent with her. And to her credit, she did not use the tent again that week. So, uh, but um, lesson learned. I, I You know, then there... Hopefully, if if this world uh, has any sensible people still in it, there will be those who will who will remark that I should have thrown her out out from under my tent. But um, I know you two goobers in particular would have uh, felt like I should have let her have it, so I did. So there I'm you go. I'm impressed, David. I, I, this is the first time uh, I've ever seen compassion in you. <laughs> well, and hopefully this will get me back in the good graces of uh, JD because I let oh. the grandmother stay under my tent. Well, we'll, we'll ask her on the next podcast. Maybe she'll All leave right, us well, a voice, of, voicemail. Uh, speaking of podcasts, we we do have one to do tonight, gentlemen. Episode sixty nine. We're going to be talking in a little while about Syrian refugees. And what is the uh, church's responsibility? There is a call for uh, many religious groups are calling for the United States government to allow in 
more refugees and for the church to step up and uh, house and take care of these refugees. There are other Christian groups who are concerned about um, and people in general concerned about um, the security risk with allowing refugees in the country. So we have a bit of a discussion about that tonight as well as kind of a firsthand story from one of the listeners of our show, Mr. Josh Armstrong, who uh, recently was in Budapest and was actually ministering to Syrian refugees there. So we're going to hear a little bit from him tonight, Uh, not live and in person, but some recorded uh, uh, recording that he made and as well as some comments that um, I got from him over instant message. I do believe Josh sent us some cereal. Is that correct, Chase? That is correct. The unfortunate thing is, since we aren't in the same room with each other, we will not be able to sample said cereal until episode 70. But I'll give you a preview. It is one of the more interesting cereals I've ever had, being from um, Hungary and everything. Uh, but I, I can't I can't tease it much more than that because it'll give away things. But fascinating cereal. I think you guys are going to be impressed. So, so Nick, just to be clear, Chase received the cereal from Budapest, um, and he proceeded to open it and go ahead and begin eating some of it. So if there is any left next week on episode 70 for us to actually taste, I will be shocked. Yeah. We'll probably have like two pieces each. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The, uh, Hopefully the uh, the mouthfeel will still be intact. Yeah, we, we may have a stale mouthfeel based on how long the cereal's been open. But we will get to that on episode. Yeah, we'll get to that on and on uh, episode seventy. But uh, before before then, we're gonna or before we get to that story, let's talk about uh, the most popular study Bible. For 2015, now, hang on, hang on. That, uh, before we get there, I got a couple of questions. Um, okay. uh, question number one: This is just kind of an ethical question. Um, okay, is it a sin to hate uh, Ole Miss and LSU today? Is it a sin to hate Ole Miss and LSU? Okay, so we're we're pushing pause on the uh, most popular study Bible of the year story. And That's just a yes or no question. We're going to switch into um, the – well, I, I would say it's a defi- definitely a sin to hate Ole Miss. I actually really like Ole Miss today, probably more than I have in a long time. Who did they play? I, that's not important. I just wanted to uh, ask kind of a random ethical question. Um, I don't believe it's a sin to hate Ole Miss, as you might imagine. Um, <laughs> I've always kind of disliked LSU, so that's probably okay too. So college football is in full swing. So earlier today, my Auburn Tigers were made made into third graders by the uh, LSU Tigers and won Leonard Fournette. I'm not sure if that's how you say his name, but Probably. I don't really care. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> he uh, he did a number. Um, a number and, what? And you, look, uh, I think it was 287, maybe. Here's the thing. So, so they had one of the Auburn guys earlier in the week who, who they put a microphone in front of him to get an interview, and they asked him about 
stopping Leonard Fournette, and he said he didn't think it, w- it would be too difficult. And um, so the media used that for fodder all week, and, and uh, that's why if I was a coach, I wouldn't let my players talk to the media because they're just trying to get sound bites like that. And all players are confident, but um, obviously Auburn had a, a lot of problems stopping him. So, so if you are <clears> – <throat> 228, not 287. Okay. All right. 228. Now, we get accused of being SEC homers on um, this podcast. But just to to fill you in, in the state of Alabama, if if you are an Auburn fan and your team loses, there is only one way that uh, that day can be made better, and that is if your arch rival Alabama also loses. And uh, that takes a little bit of the heat off of you. And so luckily for me, well, how did the Alabama Ole Miss game turn out? One of you guys want to give a recap on that since I I gave the Auburn recap. Well, it wasn't great. That's that's, that's surprising. (laughs) That you don't think your loss is as bad as our loss. That's shocking. Yeah. Well, needless to say, it was not a great day in the state of Alabama. How'd UAB do? Oh, wait. Who? <laughs> okay. So, um, other other uh, college football. I, I saw Ohio, Ohio State almost lost today. Did you guys see that? That was that was nice. I, I wish they had lost. That would have really helped. I think they won twenty to thirteen or something like that uh, over uh, Northern Illinois, I believe. That's right. Uh, quite a yeah. So um, quite a few interesting games. Georgia Tech lost today. I actually thought Georgia Tech would 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 win. They lost. Nebraska lost last minute to Miami. Um, so Nathan Martin is as upset somewhere right now as we are. So we, Nick and I actually had a chance to watch a football game with Nathan a couple of weeks ago here in my living room when uh, Nebraska lost. Yeah, Nebraska lost on a Hail Mary final play to the Mormons. And, um, I mean, it's one thing to lose last minute. It's one thing to lose on a Hail Mary it's a whole nother deal when it's to the Mormons. So, but uh, Nebraska lost again last minute today. I think field goal Ouch. lost to Miami. So I could text him, but it's two oh five in the morning. So I'm not sure that uh, if that would be appreciated or not. Probably not. Speaking of Nathan, we need to we need to just ask podcast listeners to pray for him. He he and his family have undertaken and. Uh, a remarkable ministry mission recently, and uh, may God's grace uh, be all over you guys, Martin family. We love y'all. Amen. All right, let's get to some meat, guys. This is the Gospel Friends. You can reach us. We've already mentioned our uh, Facebook page, the Hall of Dogma. You can go to hallofdogma.com and join our Facebook group for discussion and merriment. You can uh, ask to be let in and... uh, we will, we will gladly let you in. There's usually room. Uh, we tend to uh, gain 15 followers, 15 members a week, and lose five. So 
um, we're steadily climbing. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why we lose members. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later today. Uh, we have a theory on on why we have people dropping out of the hall. Solid, solid theory. And, and a possible solution. You can also reach us through email. Um, is it thegospelfriends at gmail.com, Nick? Yeah, thegospelfriends at gmail.com or on the Twitter. Uh, we have one of the most active Twitter accounts that there is, thanks to Chase Thompson. You can reach us at my gospel friends on the Twitter. We're if you have about us, one tweet every six weeks here lately, and that's that's impressive in this day and age. So, if you are a gospel friends listener and you are curious as to why it appears that we used to be much more active on Twitter than we used to be, uh, why, I'm sorry, why we used to be more active than we are today. Uh, let me give you a little insight into. Um, how we work. Chase was the Twitter leader and, uh, and, and Chase is um, one of my best friends on earth and one of the greatest godliest men that you could meet. He also has ADD like no one's business. And if he sees something shiny, he will quickly lose attention. And so uh, something shiny came along, which is known as Periscope. And once <laughs> Periscope started flashing at, at Chase, um, Twitter kind of uh, went away, unfortunately. Guilty Does that pretty much sum it up, Chase? Yeah, yeah so. it's, it's pretty close. Yeah. So good good for the Periscope, bad for the Twitter. Well. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, look, he works as a bouncer at a nightclub. I mean, he's got time. <laughs> hey, that's important work. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, if I had to ask, if uh, you had to answer what you think the most popular study Bible of this year is going to be, uh, or maybe even just the most popular Bible of the year, translation-wise, what would you guess if you had never read the story that you've already read that we're going to discuss tonight? Because I would not have mentioned this one, the message. (laughs) Okay, see, I would have said the ESV. I would have also said the ESV. Well, over the past couple of years or past few years, the ESV Bible has been the uh, the most popular Bible uh, since they came out with the ESV Study Bible. I think I read that. Um, I wish I'd kept that figure. How many how many copies it sold altogether? Maybe I can look that up in just a moment. But uh, astronomical amount of copies uh, that it has sold. Uh, you know, we've you've probably heard before the Bible is the most uh, the best selling book of all time. Uh, but statistically speaking, the Bible is probably the best-selling book every year. Um, 88% of Americans have a Bible in their home, uh, yet 13% of Americans say that they have bought a Bible within the past year. Uh, so uh, a large portion of the country, even though they have a Bible, continue to buy one each year. And uh, there's a new Bible out on the market, the NIV Study Bible. General editor is D.A. Carson, and it is uh, being uh, the, the study notes, several contributors that you have probably heard of, Kevin DeYoung, uh, Sam Storms, Tim Keller is promoting this Bible now. Uh, the NIV Study Bible is on track to be the best-selling Bible of 2015 uh, the most popular Bible of 2015, which was surprising to some of us because it really uh, seemed as if the NIV was kind of the um, 
something that was very popular. I don't know, Chase, what, in the 90s? Um, up until, early 2000s? Yeah, up until the, the mid-2000s to late 2000s, uh, the NIV was the most popular Bible from about uh, mid-80s on. So it enjoyed a pretty lar- uh, two-decade-long uninterrupted run of popularity, far surpassing the King James Version, which was the previous most popular version. <laughs> Yeah, the the reform folks. You find the ESV in the more, um, you know, churches that love the Bible. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, I I said reform. David, you use kind of the more popular, uh, common way of saying that. Yeah. (laughs) All right, so um, now the, the. if I'm not mistaken, now having I, I remember being in seminary, and my very first class in seminary, um, we were assigned a book to read, and uh, actually your your father-in-law Chase was teaching this class, and uh, it was a, a survey of the New Testament, and there was a, a particular book, and I, I actually don't remember the name of the book. I think it may have been How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. I'm not sure on that. That that may not be accurate no that's, uh, that's the right one that's by uh gordon fee and uh, uh douglas oh I, I forget great book well essentially they there was a maybe there was a revised copy of that book um and they had they were uh, their bible references the passages in the bible they were using the new the newer niv um which is um I guess the knock on it is that in certain passages it has begun using gender neutral languages where there used to be uh, masculine uh, pronouns, masculine words used uh, that they're, they're now is uh, gender neutral. And so uh, there was a group of guys in this seminary class, group of pastors who didn't want to read the book because they were using this particular translation of the NIV and um, they were successful in getting the, book thrown out of the class and uh, it was made optional rather than required reading due to their um, objections. Um, And at the time that was kind of my first, that was kind of my first um, introduction to any type of translation controversy. I think up to that point, I mean, I'd always had an NIV. I mean, that's just what I had been given when I was uh, a kid and, um, Growing up at church in the 80s, that's what I had. I think my very first Bible was King James or New King James, and then I was uh, eventually got a NIV. And so being in the seminary class, that was the very first time I ever heard anything about a translation controversy. But there was, there was quite a controversy over that NIV, and uh, it seems to me ever since then that the popularity of the NIV had, has, has kind of been dropping. Uh, but perhaps it's, it's making a resurgence now. Well, so so here's the thing. Just a, a little bit of, of history on the NIV translation. Um, it, it originally was uh, the, the work on that the NIV translation happened in the '60s. Uh, it, it started uh, at Trinity uh, Trinity Christian College in Illinois. Um, the New Testament was released in '73. I think the Old Testament part of it 
uh, w- w- came along with the full Bible in 78. The 84 version was, uh, was uh, an update, and it, it's the one that became really, really popular. Um, uh, you know, the one that, that really kind of took off. Uh, there was a, uh, I think in the, the mid-90s, they planned to do an updated NIV with much more gender-inclusive language, but it was too controversial, so they scrapped that plan. But uh, in 2002, they revisited the plan and they released the uh, today's New and International Version. Um, and TNIV, TNIV New Testament and the full TNIV came out in 2005. It featured a lot of gender uh, neutral language. In fact, most of the times in the Bible where uh, masculine pronouns were used, they they neutered it so that it would be uh, not he uh, and him, but it or, or something like that, something much more generic. But in 2011, there was an update to the TNIV, and the, the study Bible we're talking about is that updated NIV 2011, which essentially dropped a lot of the gender-neutral language and, and went back to uh, – they had a lot better, at least in my opinion, a lot better translation philosophy where it seems to be clear that the, the Greek text or the Hebrew text demanded uh, the use of the, the male pronoun – it used the male pronoun, and where it seems to be clear that the Greek or Hebrew text was speaking generically of of men, it would still use gender neutral pro- pronouns. Does that make sense? Okay, so, yeah, yeah, and and I think this uh, I, I do believe that book that I was referencing had had the updated TNIV in it, and um, and so. Um, uh, so so you know, would you? Do you think that that may be uh, where the NIV is is maybe gaining popularity again among circles that were uh, suspicious of it for a while because they they went back and made these changes? Absolutely. I think the TNIV was not a great translation. I think it obscured things that should not be obscured uh, scripturally. Now, I'm a complementarian, which by that I mean uh, I believe the Bible teaches very clearly that there are uh, different roles given to men and women uh, and husbands and wives, although the same value given to men and women and husbands and wives. And we, I, we've talked about that pretty extensively. Uh, the TNIV really obfuscated those things, a, at least in my opinion. Um, but the updated NIV 2011 did not. And and so Don Carson, D.A. Carson, is kind of the uh, translation. Uh, well, he's the general editor of the NIV Study Bible. And he's extremely complementarian, very solid, uh, and also quite reformed. Um, and for him to have signed on to be the general editor, uh, and for somebody like you know Tim Keller to promote it, who is also complementarian, I think that shows you that that particular 2011 update of the NIV is is much more readily accepted by a wider range of evangelicals. All right, I, I don't want to go down this road too far because we were going to just have a little bit of discussion about translations and, and how to choose. Um, maybe how to, how to know which one is best. I do think it's a little interesting that most preachers that I know in, 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 in their preaching um, take those texts that are masculine and make them gender neutral in their teaching, uh, not in reference to God, 
but I think most of the places in the Bible or New Testament where the letter addresses brothers, um, in preaching, uh, you don't just speak to the men. Uh, you know, you, you you use that to say, okay, so this Bible is speaking to all people, men and women. Uh, and, and so I think I think we do that in preaching. And I'm not saying that should be done in the biblical text. I, I would be of someone who would just say, look, just just you know, put down the word that the original text had, and 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 you know, go from there. But I, I, I guess I'm wondering if that's what the editors haven't had in mind when they would do those gender-neutral changes, uh, very similar to how a preacher would say, this is speaking to all people, both men and women, if they were simply trying to make that clear to those who are reading the Bible, that this is being spoken to both men and women. I it, I guess it depends on who you ask, what the motivation was. Uh, a lot of people would say the motivation behind the uh, uh, the TNIV translation would be to equalize the roles and, and what the Bible said, uh, the controversial things about what the Bible says uh, about men and women. Uh, other people would say exactly what you said, that that essentially uh, there's a lot of places in the Bible where it says brothers, but it's not just talking to the men in the church. It's talking to the women. And I remember a great article by Bill Mounts, who is a, a Greek guy extraordinaire, who, who had a conversation with his daughter uh, one time where, where, where she said, now, Daddy, did these passages that say brothers and, and say men and things like that, do they just not apply to me because I'm a girl? And he said, you know, he talked about how he really wrestled with that. And and I, I'm actually looking for the article. If I can find it, we'll put it in the show notes. But uh, it was a very profound sort of thing because there are many passages directed at brothers and men and that use the male pronoun that are for all of us, not just for women. And I think that needs to be made very clear. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think like Chase is saying, I think there's probably a pushback. I, I think there are those who are not uh, complementarians, uh, those who who are you know want to to just say that the Bible makes um, you know everybody equal with equal roles, where complementarians say men and women are equal, but they have differing roles, complementing roles. Um, there are those who would want to change that language to just make everyone equal in all aspects of church life in terms of the roles that they fulfill. Uh, and also there are people, I mean, there, there is a push out there to remove the masculine or the male connotations for God and, and now making him not God, the father or not a he. Um, and, and, and so I, I think there's a pushback there, it, you know, it, probably, it's best, I mean, in my opinion, to just have what the original language has and then just let um, let it be explained when people have those questions through conversation, discourse, and preaching. Um, but I, I do wonder, like, you know, even in the, you know, even when I was in that class, I was just thinking, well, this looks like a good book. And the professor of the class felt it was a good book. And I don't think anyone would have been turned into a heretic because the TNIV was used in, in that particular book, especially when 
probably none of the passages were even impacted or affected passages. And, and I felt like it was a bit too much of a pushback. Um, and, and I think people can go overboard uh, with those kinds of things. And so um, I, I have continued to like the NIV, uh, although in recent years I have moved I, I, into the ESV realm. Uh, the ESV, uh, the English Standard Version, is a very popular Bible. A lot of people in seminary were using it at the time. I was kind of got introduced to it in seminary, and a lot of the pastors and preachers that that I began listening to and really enjoyed were using it, and so that that's what piqued my interest in it. Uh, but Chase, uh, you know, we we've you know kind of prominently used the ESV for several years, and um, I know you and I have have used that particular translation when we were doing studies for church government and things like that. But we've had the discussion on several occasions that the ESV at times is a little bit of a hard read. Uh, the readability factor for it is uh, it's a little, it's a little high. And um, you know, I, I personally, if, especially if there's a new believer who comes to me and asks me, you know, I'm going to buy a Bible I, I want to start reading it. What what do you suggest? I don't always suggest the ESV as their first Bible to go and buy uh, because it is a difficult read at, at, at times. Well, that, that's the thing, man. You know, I, I, I have an ESV study Bible. I've preached out of the ESV for years. I, I love the study Bible. Uh, I don't have an NIV, new NIV study Bible yet. I'm planning on getting one to compare. Uh, but the ESV study Bible up until this point is is the best I've ever used. Um, and like I said, I've preached out of the ESV for years, but I, I tell you what, David, like like you and I have talked about, there it's a little wooden somewhere. Sometimes I'll read a passage in it and, and like be preaching from a passage and I'll kind of think to myself, man, people don't talk like this. This it's just and look, it's very accurate. So it's a great translation for study. Uh, and I'm not saying the vocabulary is too uh, advanced, although in some cases it, it it is a higher grade level than some translations to read. But it, it's just it 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 can be a little wooden. All right, just take a random example, like Matthew fourteen twenty. Uh, it's talking about uh, Jesus feeds the five thousand. Uh, the ESV says, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. You know, I, I understand that and everything, but that's a little, uh, that's just a little, I don't know. It, I'm not crazy about the verbiage there. Um, I, I think I think it can be done better. I, I just, there's some, there's, there's, Gosh, I, I, I've been here lately. I've been preaching more out of the Holman Christian Standard Bible because it has the it, it, it's it's up there with the ESV in terms of accuracy and faithfulness to the uh, the text, the original text. But it's just a little bit easier to understand when you're listening to it. All right, so so a lot of times uh, I have for new Christians suggested something that is an easier read, NIV. I've even suggested to people the NLT, 
which would probably put me on the outs with um, the Reformed guys, which is okay. Um, but the New Living Translation, uh, which is not, I think, the best read, the, the best Bible in terms of deep study. It, it is uh, so. Translation-wise, I guess there is a – Chase, you can explain this better than I can, but there's a, a couple of different approaches. One is is what is word-for-word word translation. Yeah. So it's essentially you take the original word and you try to find the, the, the word that is the uh, closest related to that in the English language. Um, but, of course, when you put those together in the English, it doesn't always come out sounding you know, like it, it flows correctly. Then there's the translation. Is it dynamic? Is that what they call that? Uh, uh, yeah, dynamic equivalence is is kind of the uh, uh, is is the technical term. It, basically, it, it as opposed to word for word, it's more uh, sense for sense uh, a philosophy. So, a word for word translation of any language into another language is going to sound very odd. Spanish people do not talk the same as as, as English people. French people, uh, you know, there's often uh, uh, different verb, subject, noun order, and, and so if you do a, a direct word for word translation, it's just going to sound very weird. Uh, so there's very few Bibles uh, that are direct Greek word-for-word translations. So it's all, it's all on a sliding scale. But say the NASB uh, and the ESV are more towards the word-for-word philosophy, and the NIV uh, and even the Holman are, are a little bit more towards uh, – the Holman's kind of in the middle, but the, but the NIV – and the, certainly the New Living Translation are much more formally equivalent. They're much more sense-for-sense sense translations. So, so the knock-on sense-for-sense sense translation is that in order for you to, in order for you to translate from one, you know, one sense to another, uh, here's the meaning. Here's what the point they're trying to get across. So let me translate that. Is you have to do a little bit of interpretation um, on your part, and so that that kind of opens up those texts, uh, those tr- uh, translations like the NLT, from not being as accurate because the translators are having to do much more um, interpretation on their end, and maybe they are interpreting it incorrectly, and so the NLT would have much more readability. Uh, but the knock on it would be it's not as accurate. And uh, for me, I, I, I feel like, um, you know, and I guess everybody kind of has their, um, you know, maybe the one that they, uh, the Bible that they that they kind of lean toward, that they feel like, well, it's definitely the best. Uh, John Piper, when the ESV study Bible came out, he was quoted saying that it was a dream come true because it balanced that readability and accuracy. Uh, factor, but I, but again, I think there's a lot of people that think the SV is just not that readable, and and I do find it to be wooden at times, and so I will I will point a new believer towards something like the NLT because I think they can get a sense of what the Bible is trying to say. More mature Christians, I think I would point to something uh, with uh, that's, that's more of a word for word translation, like the ESV um, or maybe the Holman. Um, you know, the interesting thing is, I think – go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, here's the problem with I – guess, I guess the problem with the situation is this. With formal equivalence or, or kind of a more of a word-for-word 
kind of translation, like the NASB, like the ESV, the translators make less theological calls about what a text means. In other words, it's left to the reader of the word to make those calls. Uh, but with the, the more the more dynamic equivalence, the more sense for sense a translation is, like when you start sliding all the way towards the, the NLT, in order to make it readable, the translators have to essentially understand what the biblical text means to make it understandable. And in doing that, sometimes they have to make some calls that, you know, you might call them interpretive calls. In other words, they're saying, well, this is what Paul meant by this. And the key is you have to hope they're right. You have to hope that call is right because you, as the reader of the NLT with no background in Greek, you have to trust that they made the right call, that they're giving you what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to say. With a translation like the NASB or the ESV or even the King James, which is which is more formally equivalent, uh, it, uh, word for word, um, the translators make less calls, and the person reading and studying and praying through the text with the power of the you know with the Holy Spirit leading him or her makes more of the calls, if that makes sense. Well, all right, so it does, and and, there, and both of those things are extremely critical. So you have readability, it, it, and this is my problem with the King James-only crowd. And, 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 and by the way, I have nothing against the King James uh, version, although I, I do think it's funny that the King James that we have today is not the original King James. It's not the King James of 1611. And I actually read a passage from the King James 1611 today, and I couldn't even understand it. The spelling and the the English language was so different. I mean, it literally looks foreign. If you had a 1611 copy of the KJV in front of you, I honestly don't think you would be able to read the majority of it, even though it's in quote-unquote English. Uh, but I think the problem that I have with the KJV only crowd to just say essentially the King James is the word of God and you shouldn't use anything else is it's just not readable. That's not how we talk. We don't we don't spell like they did then. And you have some guys, um, what John Wycliffe, um, who you know that was his big thing, uh, and he, he really fought against the uh, the Catholic Church, um, but. At the time, you know, they were the only ones that, you know, nobody had a copy of the Bible in in the English language. It was just they, it was up to the the priest to explain to them the uh, the, the languages and what what it meant. And you know, Wycliffe um, very much believed that everyone needed uh, to have a Bible that was was in you know was in their own uh, language. As a matter of fact, his quote was that it. It helps Christian men to study the gospel in the tongue in which they know best, um, and, in which they know best Christ's sentence. So he said, "It's going. It's only going to help you if you can read it in the language that you will understand Jesus the best." And um, and you got guys like William Tyndall who who believe that, and and ultimately there were there were people who gave their life who were martyred murdered trying to get the Bible into the hands of just 
everyday people so that they could read it in their language. And they were murdered not by, by the way, you know, Muslims. They were murdered by, quote unquote, other Christians. They were murdered by the church trying to trying to do this. So readability has is important, and it, it's, it's had an important part in church history. Um, but at the same time, that accuracy, because the Bible is, we believe, without error and God's word, but it is the original words that God gave that is without error <laughs> in his word. And what we're trying to do today is translate what he was, what he originally gave. And so... Um, it's important that we know what we have is accurate because this is the accuracy of our interpretation is coming up in a lot of discussions, including the uh, homosexual debate, because there's people out there saying now that what we have is not the most, you know, it's not the most accurate and our interpretations of those original texts are not accurate and trying to say that the Bible actually promotes, you know, homosexuality or, 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 doesn't, or doesn't condemn it. Yeah. So, you know, if someone is coming and asking, well, how do I find, I mean, and that, that really is the question. And I think most people are trying to find that. What is a good Bible? What is accurate? And I can read it. And I think that's the question that people have been asking for quite some time. And, and maybe that's the reason that we continue getting different translations. I mean, it seems like when the ESV came out and now with this new NIV coming out, that that's the promotion it's accurate and readable. Um, so what is the best translation out there for that? Uh, that? That seems to be what people are seeking and trying to find. That's a great question. What do you think, Nick? Nick what, what kind of translation do you use? What's your favorite? Okay, good deal. And hey, by the way, David mentioned earlier the uh, 1611 King James. I have a passage here from the original this is Galatians 2, 4. Um, I'm going to, they use different letters than us and, and such. So a V instead of a U, I'll go ahead and try to smooth that out as best I can. But Galatians 2, 4, and that because of false brethren, unawares brought in, who came in purely to spy, S-P-I-E, out our liberty, L-I-B-E-R-T-I-E, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But of these who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no man's person. For they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. Well, if, if I read James that to somebody, contact Nick. <laughs> very few people would listening to those passages be able to say, if I were to say, okay, tell me what Paul said there, they would be able to say, oh, well, this is what he's talking about. Very few people in 2015 America. But, but you know, too, uh, yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. I, I think um, – I don't know if you guys have ever seen the, there, there's a, there's actually a kind of a study out there uh, and I'm going some more with this on people's email addresses that you will be judged based on the uh, email provider that you use. 
And uh-huh. that, that, for example, if a company sees your email address and they see that you use a Hotmail account or um, uh, cer- certainly AOL, something like that, that they just assume you know nothing about computers. Uh, but people who either have maybe a Gmail account or certainly even their just own domain name, they will automatically think, okay, these people are more more techie. I think we have begun judging people based on the translation that they use, at least in in, in a lot of the circles that I've been in. Um, that it, it seems like certain translations have that 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 idea behind them as, as more scholarly. Uh, they're using the ESV. That must be very Bible literate <laughs> versus someone who maybe walked in with an NLT or an NIV. And there's kind of that idea of, uh, well, it, you know, they, they, they haven't arrived yet in, in biblical scholarship. And, um, and, and I think that that's a, um, I don't know. I think that's kind of to our detriment, uh, especially when you consider that, a lot of the world doesn't even speak English. And so we're making a big deal out of all of these different English translations that we have um, and acting like, well, which one of these English translations is the best and truest one to use? And the majority of the world, if we're going to get the Bible in their hands, it can't even be in English to begin with. So uh, I, I, I still, for me personally, I enjoy, I, I will a lot of times read um, translations side by side. There's a great website called Bible Hub. Uh, I think it's just BibleHub.com that I that I like to use, and you can put in a passage, and um, and it, and you can have several translations kind of side by side. And I enjoy reading. I still enjoy reading NLT and the NIV. I typically preach from the ESV and and do a lot of study out of that. Um, I will say, and I want, I want to ask you this, Chase, before we get out of it, um, just because, you know, from just your preaching, I tend to I tend to like to stick to one translation in preaching, although my, my mentor in ministry would actually use two or three different translations during his messages. I tend to like to stick to one. But I think sometimes that's difficult when you're in a church that you have people that use three, four, five different, you know, translations. So you've got a group of people. Some of at the Hall of Dogma Church are using the NIV. Some use the ESV. I tend to just preach out of one. But what do you think about in a, in a in a uh, a sermon jumping back and forth between translations? Some people say that, you, that only preachers only do that if they, because they'll find the translation that best makes their point or has the language, um, and, and so it's dangerous to do that. I, I would agree with that last statement. I, I think there is a sense when you're, uh, you're kind of combing through multiple translations looking for the one that best illustrates your point. You're not trying to teach what the Word says. You're trying to teach your theology and buttress it with the Word. Uh, that's dangerous. At the same time, uh, I don't think it's necessarily a problem to use different translations if you use it with the right purpose in mind. Uh, you know, which I, I actually I'm not off the top of my head. I'm not thinking of a great one, but I, I'm sure there are several great reasons to do that. Just preachers, teachers, etc. We have to be very much on our guard against 
approaching teaching from, I want to teach the people this important thing that I thought of, and I bet the Bible is going to back me up here, versus this is what the Word says. And, and you know, our teaching and preaching needs to come from the authority of the Word, not from our own pet theologies or ideas, etc., the other, the I agree with that. Uh, the other knock on jumping from one translation to another, it, it, there are people who say that that makes it difficult for you to actually ever memorize the Bible. When they point to the importance of Bible memorization, that it's easier over time for you to collect passages in your mind. Uh, Psalm one nineteen says, "You know, I, I've hidden your word in my heart, God, that I may not sin against you." That that is harder over time. Um, excuse me, it's easier over time to memorize passages if you stick with just one translation uh, rather than jumping from one to another. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I have a somewhat of a tendency to agree with that because I know for me in particular, a lot of times I will I have in my head a particular way that I've heard a verse and I'll go try to find it in the ESV concordance and I won't be able to find it. And I'll go Google it, and I'll realize that oh well, that it was. I actually, I actually know it from the NLT translation, or I actually know it from the NIV translation, and um, that that can sometimes to me make things a little uh, a little harder or a little more confusing when you're trying to find a passage of scripture while you're talking to someone. And you can't find it in your Bible because you memorize it a different way than the Bible that you, you have in front of you says it. That is in, indubitably true. All right, so let's uh, let's end this segment going this way. Chase, um, someone comes to you and says, I'm in the market for a new Bible. What would you what would you suggest I go buy? What's your answer? A uh, new believer with um, not a, a, a ton of a desire to read or ability to read, I guess um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point them towards the new living, probably. Uh, not the message. The message is a paraphrase, and you're, you're kind of relying on one guy, Eugene Peterson, to interpret – some very important things in the Bible that the message has its place, I suppose, but uh, you're letting that one guy make a lot of interpretive calls. I think that's dangerous, but new living translation is a real translation. It's not a paraphrase like the living Bible. So new believer doesn't like to read. I'm going to put him that way. Um, Just about anybody else. uh, Probably I'm going to, I'm going to point him to the Holman. Uh, or I'm going to point them to the the 2011 NIV, and, and if it's somebody that's uh, kind of uh, a leader, uh, a, a profound reader, uh, high uh, high desire to study the Word, I, I, that's when I'll probably get into uh, the ESV. I'll still say though the ESV Study Bible is the best one I've ever used, and a real studier of the Word, I'm going to say, hey, get you an ESV Study Bible and refer to a different translation when you have a hard time. All right, Nick, any different answer from uh, Chase there? All right, I, I'm going to go um, pretty much along the lines of, of – um, 
where Chase went again. I think New Believer. I'm going to go something that's very readable. Uh, as as Chase said, not the message, um, but uh, along the lines of New Living Translation or NIV. Um, I think for a more mature believer, I'm probably at this point still going with the ESV and suggesting the ESV Study Bible. I just believe that um, it, it's uh, one of the best uh, or the best that I've ever owned. I am going to check out the NIV Study Bible when it comes out. Um, I definitely want to see it. I've ran into some people that, that, you know, they'll knock study Bibles and they say, we don't really need that. You don't need those study notes from, um, you know, from, from man. But I was reminded today thinking about just Acts 8, where Philip uh, was ministering to the uh, eunuch from Ethiopia. And he, he kind of came across him reading from Isaiah and he asked him the question. He said, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch said, how can I, unless someone guides me? I think, um, while we mature in Christ and we learn to hear from God and, and hear from his spirit and be led by his word, there is still God has designed it where we need guidance in his word and teaching in his word. And for me, a good study Bible, that's what it is. It's, it's just a teacher. It's not supposed to be the final authority on those verses, but I think having a good study Bible is a way to have a good guider are a good teacher there with you, which I think is why it's important to make sure you get a good study Bible. And I think the ESV is still for me, the best one, but I, I am interested in, in this one that's coming out and Hey, I got the Tim Keller seal of approval. So even for you reform guys, it's, uh, you know, you know, it's, it's got, it's got Tim's thumbs up. So can't be all that. It's a big deal. Almost as good as Piper's thumbs up. Yeah, let's not go crazy. I mean, it's not. I mean, a Keller thumbs up is great. <laughs> uh, it's Piper for me, but I'm a Piper fanboy, so. It just says Piper right now. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. Chase, who, who wins for you in a, in a Piper-Tim uh, Keller disagreement? Gosh, that's a good question. Um, neither one automatically. Um, I, I, there's actually been some pretty good Piper Wayne Grudem uh, disagreements. They're they're very good friends, but there's some things they disagree on. And some of the times I've uh, sided with Piper, some of the times I've sided with Grudem. Um, that's a tough one. I don't know. That's a nice cop out answer. Good job. Yeah. Thanks. Way to stay middle of the road. <laughs> <laughs> well. Chase Thompson. All right. Uh, good discussion, guys. Uh, again, you're listening to the uh, Gospel Friends podcast. Um, and uh, uh, we're glad you joined us tonight. And uh, it is late, but we are. 2.51 a.m. Yeah. This, well, by the time you hear it, it'll be whatever. But for us, it's uh, early morning. Um, we gave some contact out in uh, contact info out a little earlier. We do have some ways that you could leave us a voicemail if you are interested in doing so and maybe commenting on uh, this story uh, or perhaps this one that we're about to do about uh, the church's response to refugees. Uh, Nick, what are those uh, telephone numbers uh, or the telephone number and also the international number? All right. And we haven't heard from Barbara our uh, prime voicemail lever for a while. I hope she's doing okay. 
since her move back to Canada. That's rough. All right. Um, all right, guys, we're going to uh, – one more topic for tonight. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this one, uh, not as much time, uh, primarily because I think this debate will continue to rage in the weeks ahead, and, and uh, I don't think we have as much information on it now as we will. Uh, most people are aware of the Syrian refugee crisis, um, millions of uh, – well, I say millions. I think there's about 4 million refugees um, that have uh, fled – primarily from Syria, war-torn Syria, um, a country that has been ravaged by civil war as well as the uprising of ISIS, uh, the terror group in Syria. We have families, men, women, and children who are fleeing that country into neighboring Middle Eastern countries and spilling over into Europe looking for uh, asylum. This has created uh, what is being called the worst refugee crisis since World War II. Uh, the United States is beginning to get involved in this. Uh, we have as- accepted in this country about 1,500 of those refugees um, from, I believe, directly from Europe. Uh, I think 300 more before the end of the year. But the President of the United States has offered to take in another 10,000 uh, by this time next year. But there are religious groups. Uh, and humanitarian groups in our country that that are pushing for even more of the refugees to be accepted. The number that they are throwing out is close to 100,000 refugees that they want our government uh, in the United States to accept. Uh, There is a a group known as We Welcome Refugees, uh, which has got several partners, uh, Christian or religious-based groups, including World Relief, the Justice Conference, and uh, well-known evangelical Ann Voskamp. Uh, All of those individuals at the uh, uh, WeWelcomeRefugees.com are pressuring or wanting to pressure the government to accepting more refugees, and they are also calling on the church to step up and be willing to provide aid to the refugees, uh, both here in the United States and in other countries. So to send money to help these refugees to go to support churches that are trying to minister to the refugees in Europe. At the same time, if they do come here to the United States, to be willing to open our homes and churches to those refugees. Uh, At the same time, guys, we have people who are concerned about security, terrorist attacks, and that many of these refugees are of military age males who possibly um, do not like the United States. And and so uh, a, a lot of the politics here in our country is that we're in, we would be inviting 100,000 people who would possibly hate our country, and many of them plot terror attacks. Um, some of the political numbers that have been thrown out is that up to 80% of these refugees are male, fighting-age males. Um I don't believe those numbers to be accurate. We'll talk about that in just a second. But essentially the question kind of before us, and, and, and I say this is before us, it's even come up in our own church. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had a kind of a, a prayer time for refugees and, um, and and people who are in this plight. And we have had people express concerns at our church about how do we know that we're not bringing, welcoming in enemies uh, into the country, and not that they're not wanting to take care of them, but they are just suggesting 
um, that we take care of people with a, a bit of um, caution. Uh, a bit of caution. Yeah, thank you. So, what is just a kind of initial, and this has got to be quick, but just um, what's the church's responsibility? Is the church supposed to have an answer for this? What does the Bible call us to do, and how do we answer the concerns? How do, how do we truly minister to an enemy if they are our enemies? And and what is the call of the Bible to minister to our neighbors? Uh, what does it call us to do here in, in this situation? Uh, I guess I guess I'll jump in. Um, I think it's a great question. I think it's well worth struggling with. Um, I, I think the Bible would call us not to security as our first and primary response. Uh, you know, security is okay. And, and, and let me be very clear. I hope our government does their due diligence and screens out every potential terrorist and every terrorist uh, amongst the refugees. That is the job of the government. Uh, as Paul says in Romans, they have been given the sword for a reason. Uh, I hope they not only screen out every terrorist, uh, but that they, uh, would actually bring justice to those terrorists. Um, that's the government's job. Uh, at the same time, our job as Christians, as believers, uh, is to love our enemies and feed strangers and clothe strangers. So, so you have Jesus saying, Matthew five forty three through 48 in the NIV. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And, and, and I hear a lot of people saying now, well, loving our enemies doesn't mean letting terrorists in so they, they'll kill us. And it doesn't. But loving in the Bible is always an action. And, and Jesus continues that you may be children of your father in heaven. Uh, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Those are, those are some great questions. And, and just to kind of keep reading the Bible, uh, Matthew 25. Uh, it's a novel idea. I guess. I guess so. Um, Matthew twenty five thirty four. <laughs> there you go. This is also the NIV. The king will say to those on his right, "This is Jesus with the shep- the the separating the people at the end of times as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. The sheep are the ones who did right and are uh, entering into eternal life in heaven." He says, "Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance." Uh, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When, when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And, and the thrust of Jesus's teaching, the thrust of the scripture is in that direction. Hospitality for strangers, loving our enemies. The thrust of the scripture is not about security and protection. 
And let me be very clear. I've got a gun. Terrorists come into my house and start causing trouble. I'm going to attempt to shoot them. Um, but the thrust... They're on a military base, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) The thrust of the scripture calls us to love our enemies and practice hospitality in a radical way uh, over and against protecting our borders. That's my take. I I completely agree with you, Nick, on... uh, There's... You know, if this was a political show and we were we were just talking from our political viewpoints, um, my answer is probably – I mean, my answer is going to be informed by my Christian belief, but I, I don't know that my Christian – I don't know that my Christian beliefs dictate that I, I have to believe the, that the United States has to um, bring in the refugees here. Uh, in other words, I'm, I'm not sure that just because I'm a Christian means that – I have to have a particular bent on immigration and 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 what we need to do refugee wise. Um, you know, having said that, you know, Chris Studdard from the UK, you know, he made a good comment in the Hall of Dogma this week that um, he said, you know, for Europe, this problem's already here. Uh, even if we don't want it to be, we've got borders yeah. that are being closed. We've got police brutality. Um, we have riots that are breaking out. Um, and Chris said, I'm sorry, in my opinion, the United States can't just sit there and say it's not our problem, uh, as it may not be now, but it will be soon. And I think that's a, I think that's a good dis- discussion point, and, that, and, and that's a kind of a, a political approach uh, and, and a good political question. I think from an issue of the church, um, I do think the church is called exactly what Chase just read. I mean, we, we are called to take care of our neighbors. Um, we are called to, um, to take care of those who are hungry and hurting. Uh, and so I agree with what Chase said. Here's, here's the only, I I guess this is the, the, the caveat I'll throw out and, and, and then I want to end with some comments from Josh Armstrong, but Christians sometimes have a tendency to me to jump on the latest thing. Um, and, and I want to be very careful with what I'm saying here. We sometimes things get trendy, and and we're asked, or all of a sudden we need to be taking care of a potential subset, subset or problem because all of a sudden it, it's the thing. So a couple of years ago, the big push was human trafficking, and 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 that is still a major problem. And that is still something that is of a concern, but it's kind of gotten pushed to the back of the line. And now there's something, there's other things that have been moved to the front of the line that if you're a Christian, you need to be dealing with this issue. You need to be putting money and time toward this. A few years ago, it was human trafficking. Today, it's Syrian refugees. And and the fact is, you know, Jesus told us the poor are always going to be with you. And so I guess there's a part of me that just thinks, Yes, sure, the church should take care of refugees. The church should take care of people who are in need. But there are people who are in need all around you. There are all types of issues around the church. And so, you know, should we take care of the refugees from Syria? Yes, but there are probably people within two miles of your house who who don't have a meal or who – they're homeless people in, in, in your local city. 
who you could take take in and take care of. So I, I just I say yes to it, but I think we have to be careful about it becoming the latest trend that Christians are supposed to take care of. I think we should live with the mindset of taking care of the poor and the needy and the hurting. And then whatever God places in front of us or calls us to, if it's human trafficking, if it's foster care, if it's adoption, if it's Syrian refugees, then we put our energies toward that. But I think we should be led by what God is pointing us to and not necessarily what the latest thing on Twitter is. Um, so don't I don't know. Over, that is, don't step over a Ethiopian least of these uh, to go surf a Syrian least of these because that's what uh, that's what everybody's doing. That's cool right now. Yes, yes. Um, having said that, I do want to I want to mention Josh Armstrong, who is a listener to the podcast. Uh, Josh and his wife. Um, they actually have a website, projectfaithjourney.com. Uh, they have a podcast off of that website as well. Josh is the one who recently went to Budapest, sent us some cereal we'll be reviewing on the next episode. Um, they planned a trip to Budapest nine or t- to 12 months ago. Uh, they were going over there to support and encourage some missionary friends that they have. And um, it this refugee crisis sprung up while they were, um, before they made the trip. So when they got there, they ended up taking care, uh, helping take care of of these refugees. And uh, I asked Josh a couple of questions earlier tonight, just uh, kind of texting back and forth with him. You know, he said that uh, about 160 to 200,000 refugees have entered um, uh, Hungary the the past few months. Um, And... um, that many of those are military age males. However, he said what's happening in Syria is that the military age males are are either being forced into the military or they're being told you're going to go to jail. So many of them are are fleeing because they don't want to fight. But he said there were also Christians who were there who were uh, Christian refugees from those countries um, he said that everyone, see anyone rejecting food, there have been some reports out there that some people were rejecting fruit, food because it was not halal, um, the, the uh, I guess, Islamic-blessed food. He said he didn't see any of that. Um, he said that there were a lot of women, a lot of children, a lot of families, and, um, and you know, Josh's take on it was that, that was the people there. That was who was in front of him and who was in front of his wife. They had a real heart for people, and, and they, they helped to take care of them and, 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 uh, and serve their neighbor. And, and I think in that position where God had obviously placed them in that place at that time, that was exactly what, was, uh, you know, what they were supposed to do. But he was able to give a firsthand account of, of the refugee issue there and what they did to serve. And so I would just uh, point you to projectfaithjourney.com. And um, they right now have a preview of their podcast that deals with that trip to Budapest um, that's on the website right now. And they're going to be releasing the uh, the actual podcast where they go over some of the details of what they did there in helping with the refugee crisis. And so if you uh, kind of get a firsthand account from someone who loves the Lord and connected this podcast, uh, point you to their website, go check that out. You can also read an article that his wife, Jennifer wrote, foster parenting is one of the hardest callings I've faced. 
So that's kind of a, a, a thing for you, Nick, as a heroic foster parent. Interesting. Yeah, she posted that on September the 18th. They got a good blog out there. Um, now, uh, look, that, I think that's a great discussion. Maybe that we should just have a, a larger topic about that one day. I think the problem with following trends is what I said earlier uh, about the human trafficking. I think that's a real issue. We have, I, I know people that are closely connected to me that used to be in my youth group who have a real heart for that. But the problem with trends is that people jump on something and then they quickly move away from it and forget about it. Um, and, and, and so, you know, I think like the human trafficking issue is still a really big issue, but it's kind of gotten moved off of the front page headlines because now there's other things that are, are more popular for Christians to be dealing with. And so uh, I agree totally with you, Nick. I think there's, I think all of us are called by Christ to serve others. I think the particular way that we're called to serve others is, I think it's different for each individual. You know, we were called to adoption. I don't think everybody's called to adopt. Um, Everybody may be called to help support orphans. Definitely the Bible tells us that, orphans and widows. Jesus tells us that. Um, I don't... You're called to foster care. I don't think everybody is. And so I think there, I think you, we know we're called to serve, but I do think different families and people are, are called by God to serve in different capacities. And I think part of maturing in Christ is seeking out and learning what is that way you're supposed to serve. We're supposed to do something, <laughs> um, but, but what is that? So. You betcha. Um, I think Chase fired him. They tried to get him. They tried to get him to get organized. He was an Auburn fan. Uh, yeah. Well, there was a couple of things. Uh, Rob Halton. I always worry if I'm mispronouncing Rob's name, but um. I do tend to worry about mispronouncing people's names unless your last name's K Rice, and then I I don't uh, worry about it too much. But uh, good old Rob, Rob wrote just one of the um, wow, one of those encouraging blogs about our podcast. Um, uh, well, I don't know that that many people that have even written a blog about our podcast, but one of the most humbling comments about our co- podcast that have been that's been made, absolutely humbling. But um, uh, Rob uh, wrote that out. What was that? I said it brought a tear to me. I yeah, it, it just really incredible uh, to hear some feedback. I, always, I mean, you know, we've talked before about getting started and doing this podcast and and what we. You know, we hope to to meet new people and and, and engage people in conversation and and uh, and and bring the word and some humor to um, to various topics and discussions. But uh, when when people post, for me, when people post comments about how God has used this silly thing that we do uh, in their life, it is um, that's what fires me up. That's what makes me want to sit here at three thirty in the morning and um, do this and, and find time to do this. So very appreciative for Rob. He is at count it all dung on Twitter. Uh, Rob Halton 
H-A-U-G-H-T-O-N.com forward slash blog. Um, I don't know if that's the full address there, but I do know you can go to his Twitter and find it. Uh, just great article. We appreciate Rob. Um, Thank you, Rob. And, um, and uh, so I think uh, uh, there was a, you know, Nick and Desiree Johnson. I saw they got into a little fight on Twitter uh, last week. So good job, Nick, fighting with a girl. Um, You're one to talk. Well, I don't, I don't understand why. I'm not, you know, why, why does Nick get suspended? That's my question. Well, these, the executive council is considering it. I engaged the grandma in conversation. I just wanted to know why she took my parking space. <laughs> uh, and also, at Can't Stop Talking, um, they um, they were the ones trying to pull the uh, dodgeball tournament together between us, the Reform Pub, uh, Reform Pubcast, and Bad Christian. They said that the uh, tournament starts next week in Spain, so uh, or not at all. <laughs> so, um, I guess we may miss that, guys. I don't know. Uh, I spent all of my uh, extra income I had to go to Spain on a uh, new Ferrari. So I don't, Jason. You have some money I can borrow to get us to to get us to Spain? N- not for that. Sorry. <laughs> all right. Well, I guess we're going to miss the dodgeball tournament. We would have done well, though. I'm fairly certain we would have taken out the Reform Pubcast guys. Well, there's only two of them. Well, there would only have been two of us because you have a bad rotator cuff, so I don't think you would have been a lot of help in dodgeball. Well, I can dodge and I can catch. Okay. You just won't be able to throw it at anybody. We let Nick do that. (laughs) There you go. All right. And and then a lot of great feedback from last week, uh, episode 68. Um, I kept, as I was in exile, seeing all the comments coming through about Emmanuel's um, words that he spoke and what he said uh, and uh, how it just resonated with a lot of people. And I, I went back and listened to it uh, this afternoon. I was asked what my comments were on the Tim Challies uh the letter that his wife wrote as well as, as uh, that you guys discussed uh, along with the RC Sproul and um, Tullian situations. Um, definitely think Tullian was, was just placed back into ministry too quickly. I had the same feelings that Emmanuel did. I felt like that his response to what happened was that he he just kind of placed that back on his wife. And uh, I think I said that to you guys the moment I read it. Um, R.C. Sproul, uh, you know, I agreed with what Nick said. I, I just would have trusted the guys around him. Uh, you know, I think they should just know the situation. If they determined he needed to be out a year, then, you know, I wouldn't argue against that. I just don't think you can mandate a time. You know, it, maybe it didn't need to be a year. Maybe it didn't need to be a month. I think the people that he was accountable to, um, I have a lot of grace there. I mean, I just, I think for his situation, I'm not saying that, that, that he, he should have been on Ashley Madison, but man, just his situation and with his wife passing, um, quite honestly, I just have a lot more grace for that situation that I did for Tullian. And I'm probably wrong in that. I'm not a just judge. Uh, only God is a just judge, but you know me personally, I just have more grace for Sproul in that situation. And then um, Tim Challey's wife, her letter, um, good letter. I, I, I guess I'll, I'll just 
you know, in my comments saying this, guys, I and this is probably going to come out wrong. I I agreed with her push toward men. I agreed with what she was saying in, in terms of um, you know men need to fight sexual temptation and mm-hmm. and you know men need to step up. And, and I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I can put a period at the end of the sentence and stop there. <laughs> but I will say to having pastoral counseling for several years with married couples, I've had a lot of those situations where it seems like the, the wife really wants to push the man rightly so toward fighting those sexual temptations. But there are passages in the, in scripture that tell us very clearly that in a marriage, you should not deny each other sexually. And that if you do deny each other sexually, that it will create temptation. That you should not deny each other so that the enemy will not have a foothold. And I think that should also be brought up and pushed. And I am not for a moment saying that men are out there doing what they're doing simply because their wives are not um, providing them their physical needs. But I will say from a pastoral standpoint, I am aware of marriages that have ended because of that. I do believe I have counseled couples in situations where the wife had simply cut her husband off from sexual intimacy. And I think the Bible says that is wrong. And I think the Bible warns that if we do not provide for our spouse what they need physically, that it will invite temptation. And I think that should also be mentioned, and that should also be pushed among Christian couples as well. I think that's that's good. I, I was asked a question. Uh, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, David. I, I was asked a question in, in the Hall of Dogma Facebook group um, about wh- whether my comments on episode 68 were blaming women, uh, wives in particular, when their husbands engaged in sexual immorality. And I'm going to answer that by saying something that might not be very popular, but I think is very biblical and very truthful. There is never a situation where a husband or a wife, you know, can is caught in sexual immorality that can point the finger at the spouse. Uh, you know, the, the husband cannot point his finger at his wife and say, Hey, this was, this was mainly her fault. Uh, the responsibility for sexual immorality lies on the husband or the one who committed the act at the same time. And this is the thing that I think will possibly be, uh, a little hard to hear. There is never a situation that you can find in the Bible where there is an excuse for a husband to deprive his wife for se- from sex or a wife to uh, deprive um, her husband from sex. There's no excuse from that, for that. You could say, well, he doesn't approach me the right way or she doesn't approach me the right way. I'm sorry. That is not a biblical excuse. There is no biblical excuse listed for depriving a spouse of sex, save one, and that is a mutual agreement to withdraw temporarily from sexual activity in order to, in order to deeply, uh, more deeply pursue the Lord. It has to be mutual, and it has to be focused on pursuing the Lord. Beyond that, you may not like 
their smell. You may not like their approach, their ways. It may not be gentle enough. It may not be refined enough. It may not be to your liking, husband or wife denying your spouse sexual intimacy. But none of those listed are biblical excuses. And and husband, if you're doing a bad job approaching your wife sexually, clean up your game, man. I, I mean, good heavens. Do better. But it's not an excuse. No. So husbands and wives are never responsible for each other's sin. Absolutely. But you can, but you can be responsible for each other's temptation. Uh, well, I like the, I like the I, phrasing. I have told couples that before. It is, it is. You stand before God, so I never have an excuse to sin, and, and and can blame my wife on it because my commitment and vow that I made was not just to her; it was to God. And so, whether she's living up to her end of of the bargain or not, doesn't matter. I'm still responsible to what I promised God. But you can cause your spouse to be tempted, and you can cause that through the denying of. Um, physical intimacy and not only the denying of it, but quite honestly, the Bible says the denying of it to, you know, when they ask <laughs> and, and, you know, that's, that's probably another, a whole nother topic for another day. But um, um, anyway, I just think that's an important part of the conversation and, and just one that when I was, was hearing the letter, uh, that's that's what came to my mind. I just think we should I think we should give the full counsel. Agreed. I'm done. And by the way, I agree with I think it was Emmanuel who said a husband who expects sex seven times a day or seven times a week or something like that is is unrealistic to the core. I I agree with that. Even though I cannot point to a chapter and verse that affirms that, I do believe that is unrealistic to the core. I, I, look, I agree with that too, and that was the kind of the road that I guess I wasn't going to go down just then. But I think you can, if you have an open, honest discussion with your spouse, you can get down to what do, you, what are your needs, what is the need, and, and I think uh, a, a honest discussion between husband and wife, you can reach that conclusion of what the need is, and I think the Bible calls you to meet that need. And that timing is probably different for different people. Yeah. That frequency, I guess. All right, Nick. I love you, bro. Get us out of here. Land the plane. 3.30 in the morning. Not a soul in sight. City's looking like a ghost town on a moon the summer night. Raindrops on the windshield, there's a storm moving in. He's heading back from somewhere that he never should have been. And the thunder rolls. And the thunder rolls. Nice. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is a friend of mine.